one man must choose between others between having dinner and Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I'm your host, and I will introduce my guest to you in just a couple seconds, but before I formally introduce him, just want to remind everyone that Cult Film Companion Podcast and our sister podcast, Twin Peaks Talk, is now available on all major podcast platforms. We are um, available to contact over social media on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Film Comp, C-O-L-T-F-I-L-M-C-O-M-P. We are a featured podcast on the Blind Knowledge Creative Collective at www.blindknowledge.com, which is a great website to check out podcasts, videocasts, webcasts from all around the world that cover interesting and unique topics in um, an informative and entertaining fashion. So please check out all the fine creators over at blindknowledge.com. We are also a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio web, uh, audio web for iOS and Android that covers that will find the latest trending articles based on topics that you choose to follow and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Download and use Newsly for free today at www.newsly.me. And please use the promo code C-O-L-T-F-1-L-M, that's cult film, drop the I, pop it a one, and enjoy a month free of Newsly's premium service courtesy of us. So with all that uh, technical business out of the way, I'm very pleased to re- welcome back a returning guest. Unfortunately, our previous episode, um, due to some technical issues, was was lost to the void. And um, I had a blast talking with uh, Mr. Joshua Milliken about uh, John Dies at the End. And um, at some point, I will get back to covering uh, John Dies at the end. But today, I would like to welcome back formally for the actually first time that you, the audience, will be hearing it, <laughs> Mr. Joshua Milliken, who is um, an author, journalist, interviewer. Uh, Josh, welcome back to the show. Um, hey, and welcome. You. Um, welcome to, uh, well, the audience is welcoming you now for the first time, but, um, so we got into a lot of your background, but, um, just, uh, b- b- unfortunately because the, that episode, um, did not make it to air. Sacrifice uh, to the internet gods. Yeah. Just, just the way that, um, I, I think that, uh, Don Coscarelli would probably want it. So, um, <laughs> but, um. Please tell us all about a little bit about your background um, and also your new book now available everywhere, The Dreadful Years. Uh, please t- um, t- tell everyone a little bit about uh, us, a little bit about yourself and your background is in regards to film and specifically horror. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, my background, you know, if, if anyone's heard of me already, it's most likely because I was editor-in-chief at Dread Central for uh, a couple years, about two years straight between uh, 2019 and 2021. Uh, You know, before that I started in horror journalism in the the early 2010s, I've been at it about, uh, you know, a full decade. Um, So, you know, that's kind of my background. Um, You know, I I took a sabbatical a little over a year ago, coinciding with the birth of my son. Uh, And during that time, I just kind of, uh, you know, uh, decided this would be a new chapter in my life and decided to transition from journalism 
into uh, writing books. I had written a fiction novel um, that I dusted off and uh, got published last year. And uh, now my second book, The Dreadful Years, uh, just came out on Friday. And it's a nonfiction collection of the interviews I did during my entire time at Dread Central, not just when I was editor-in-chief, but when I first started. So you've got interviews in there from 2018 all the way through 2021, you know, uh, when the pandemic hit and everything changed. So uh, more than 50 interviews in there. It's really extensive tome, uh, 500 pages plus a, a gallery and an index. And uh, although it's primarily, you know, a collection, I did do a little bit of, um, um, uh, what's the right word, memorial, memoir, anyway, you can, maybe you can do a little editing here when you uh, put it out. But yeah, I, I basically made it like a hybrid memoir. So in between the interviews uh, and before and after it begins, you know, I do like an intro and an outro and I kind of, um, you know, it, it's not... Um, it's not complete. It's not about my time at Dread Central. I just kind of try to frame things here and there throughout to kind of talk about, you know, uh, an aspect of the interview, an aspect of the, the interviewee, or just kind of uh, some updates on where I was uh, in my career at Dread Central at the time. Oh, so it's got it like all. Like part, uh, part autobiography, but also um, partially, um, I mean, Feel free. Uh, I don't like to name drop the people that I've talked to, but I encourage you. Please drop some of the some of the interviews that you've done over the years. The one, some of the the ones that you're probably most proud of uh, that are that are included in this new book. Sure. I mean the the names that everyone's heard of. You know, M Night Shyamalan, uh, Robert Englund. You know, Freddy Krueger. Um, if, if you don't know who Robert Englund is, and I don't know why I'm talking. No, just kidding. But uh, you know. <laughs> Rob Zombie, um, you know, uh, really big names like that. And then I've got, you know, the, the indie heavyweights, Jen and Sylvia Saska, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, um, uh, you know, just the, uh, tons of really great people. Um, uh, Crispin Glover was one of the, the my favorite interviews. Uh, Adam Rifkin uh, had an amazing interview with him. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, one of the stars of the film we're going to be talking about today, David Arquette had a, a great interview with him in my book. So, um, just, just tons of, tons of great stuff. There's a, a foreword also by Gigi Saul Guerrero, who is, oh, wow. uh, yeah, a big up and coming, um, Latina, uh, director, um, kind of, a multi country, you know, she's from Mexico. She lives in Canada and you know she's uh, making films all over, so she she's just wonderful, and she uh, wrote a wonderful foreword that's in my book. So you know, lots of reasons to check it out. Hopefully, well, I'm going to use that little uh, as a segue because we um we've got a female director here. We're talking, of course, about the um, 1999 uh, film Ravenous, mm -hmm. and uh, we've got um, directed by Antonio Bird. Um, and I love uh, when I get the opportunity to showcase uh, female directors on here because, unfortunately, um, because I deal so much with stuff in the past, you know, the opportunities aren't out there. But, I mean, some of the directors that I've talked about here previously, 
uh, Catherine Bigelow, uh, mm-hmm. great director, Jackie Kong with Blood mm-hmm. Diner. Of course. Um, and the, uh, of course, I'm a huge fan of the, the Soska sisters. Um, yes. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, uh, my, like I said, I deal a lot in the past and the opportunities uh, for female directors that are available now um, just weren't there. So I, 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 I get a kick out of, out of every time that I get a chance for that. And something like Ravenous, uh, I, I wouldn't and not to say that, I, you know, a sexist attitude, but just kind of one of the um, misconceptions about horror. I, I guess you would think that it's a very male dominated genre. Uh, particularly when it comes to directors, which I guess you could say is true, um, or, you know, decades ago. But like I said, we've got so many great directors um, out there now. Um, uh, uh, what's her name? Amy Heron. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, who directed Pet Cemetery? Mary Lambert. Thank you. Um, so there are, you know, they're they're out there, and um, you know, just if you have any preconceived notions that uh, a female director or a non-binary or whatever, um, other than a cis white male, can deliver horror, I mean, we're living in a new kind of golden age of horror where we have so many different backgrounds of people bringing us amazing tales. But let's go back. To 1999, um, with a little movie called Ravenous, uh, came out uh, March 19th, 1999. Uh, so I was uh, gearing up for my high school graduation when this came out. This, this movie had a budget of about $12 million, according to my research, but only grossed a, you know, a little over $2 million at the box office. Not uncommon for for movies that show up on my my show because you know if if you're a, you know a runaway blockbuster success the chances are yes you could have somewhat of a cult following with like real diehard fans but I'm talking about these movies that kind of slip through the cracks and don't really get the recognition that they deserve so um, I'm always pleased to talk about this and now this. This is a rarity in the horror genre because we're talking about um, a, this movie's a period piece mm-hmm. and also a brutal horror movie. Um, we're we're talking about a movie set in, I believe, like the eight, 1840s, if yep. I, my notes are correct, 1840s. And um, why don't you give us a little bit of a, a background? Why don't you, um, you probably more succinctly could come up with a the plot before we get into this this excellent cast because another segue we've got David Arquette in here oh, yeah. and I, I can't wait. I, to I, I want him. Yeah, um, but be, just um, if you could um, just give us a little bit of a how would you how would you sum up this if you were if you were going to pitch this um, if you had to do the so called Hollywood right. elevator pitch. The elevator pitch. How would you how would you pitch Ravenous to I mean, a, a producer? Sure, it, it's a horror western cannibal movie. Uh, takes place in the 1840s, like you said. Um, we're introduced to um, Captain Boyd, who uh, was a soldier during the Mexican American War. 
uh, we see sort of through a flashback in an opening sequence that uh, he, he and his regiment were under attack um, and he actually uh, froze uh, and just lied down. And he was so frozen that the enemy thought he was dead and they threw him in a, a cart with all the other dead bodies and, you know, took him behind enemy lines. Uh, it, it's ambiguous at first, but something happens to him. He, he is revived somehow and uh, single-handedly kind of takes down the fort from behind enemy lines. So he's kind of this coward hero, hero coward. You know, he's um, uh, uh, celebrated for his achievement, but he's also punished for his cowardice. And his punishment is he's sent out to the <laughs> South Post in Sierra Madres, or excuse me, the yep. Sierra Nevada Correct. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. The, the Sierra Nevada mountains, uh, California. Um, and, uh, you know, he's sent out there during the, the bleakest months of winter, uh, when there's the sport out there for Spencer, uh, just a skeleton crew. Um, you know, the, the folks in charge are really apathetic or drunk. You know, the, the couple of pirate, uh, privates they have there. One's a religious <laughs> zealot and the other one's kind of a stoner. Uh, right. There's also a, a, a native, uh, a couple of native siblings, um, never says what tribe they're from. They're called George and Martha, which, you know, obviously are not their real names. Uh, George and Martha Washington, I assume is the, yeah, the, the that, that's there. kind of feeling. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Boyd's out there, uh, doing his penance, so to speak. And not long after he arrives, uh, a man arrives emaciated, uh, says that he's basically been uh, stranded for the past three months. He was part of a wagon train uh, that got um, uh, trapped. Uh, they were led by uh, uh, a military man named Ives, Major Ives. And apparently this guy uh, led this whole wagon train astray. Once they were all uh, frozen down, locked down in this cave, uh, you know, they eventually resorted to cannibalism. Uh, Ives, you know, was the, the leader of everything. He, uh, you know, instigated murder um, when they ran out of food. And so this uh, guy who shows up at Fort Spencer, his name's Calhoun, um, you know, he basically says it came down to a point where he realized he was probably next. And so he just, you know, ran. So... He arrives at Fort Spencer and the uh, commanders of Fort Spencer decide, well, they have to do a rescue mission if, to see if anyone else is there and to catch Ives and bring him to justice. So they head down to the cave to do a rescue mission, at which point you find out that Calhoun has been fooling everyone. Um, mm -hmm. That not only did he partake in the cannibalism, but he was the instigator of the cannibalism and he was the final survivor. Um, so he's got everyone out there and he tries to kill everyone. And the only one who escapes is Boyd. Um, uh, we, we can get into the, the weeds on this one if it comes up. It just He wanders back, the, the sole survivor. A um, couple other people are still at the camp because they weren't around when Calhoun arrived. They were on a supply run. So um, since he's been gone, um, there's a new general in charge there. The same guy who kind of knew his history as the hero coward. You know, and he thinks that Boyd's just making this whole story up. He thinks that something happened out there in the woods and he just got separated from him and doesn't believe this story about a, a cannibal or anything. So, you know, kind of nothing good for Boyd. No one believes him. 
so the general tells him, well, we've got a new commander who's arriving here, who's going to take over. I'd like you to meet Major Ives. And who walks in? Colonel. But, Colonel Ives, yes. And who walks in but Calhoun. Um, so then it becomes kind of interesting because I, I've heard that some people say for certain that he was Ives all along, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure who the, if, if he was Ives the whole time or if he's Calhoun pretending to be Ives, played by uh, Robert Carlyle, who's just amazing. People in film know him from Train Spotting and 28 Weeks Later. Just an amazing yeah. actor. And I was really scrutinizing his accent, you know, when he was Colonel Ives. Uh, you know, he speaks, it sounds American, but it sounds very deliberate. And I'm not sure if that was, uh, you know, because it's colloquial from, you know, the 1840s, from a different geography, or if it was just that he couldn't pull off the American accent as well as the uh, Scottish accent, you know, he, the, the, you know, actors from the UK. So it, it, his Scottish accent was very natural. So, you know, again, it's sure. we, can, yeah. we can go into the weeds in too. You know, it, is it Calhoun? Is it Ives? You know, who is it? Anyway, the, the whole thing um, becomes like a metaphor for manifest destiny, uh, cannibalism as manifest destiny, as a, a ravenous urge. Um, you know, the more you eat, the more you want, kind of American <laughs> expansionism. Uh, yep. but there's, there's quite a few little twists along the way. Um, the biggest one, I think, being um, Boyd's motivation throughout. Uh, I think on additional viewings, you view his character very differently on on a second and a third viewing but uh you know great film one thing maybe you know a little bit more about of too that we can talk about you know because i did my own research before we talked antonia bird wasn't the original director um there was a problem uh, and after about three weeks of shooting they were uh, having uh, budgetary issues uh, creative issues and the original director was fired and it was Robert Carlyle who recommended uh antonia bird come in and save the day which she certainly did yeah, I, 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 I'm going to be honest. I'm not familiar that much with the original director. I, I'm going to try to pronounce his name. I'm going to do my best. Milcho Manchevsky. Yeah, it's Matt, yeah. uh, Macedonian director. And, and this is not... I mean, you and I were, were kind of, um, you know, I'm not insulting us, but we're kind of film nerds. So we've heard the stories about you know, ghost directing a movie or right. a movie going a couple weeks into production and then firing the director, firing the star. Like Back to the Future originally had, you know, Michael J. Fox wasn't originally cast. It was right. Eric Stoltz who was right. fired after a couple weeks. Uh, Tombstone... Uh, notoriously, you know, is credited to George, um, another last name I'm going to butcher, but um, uh, is credited as the director. But people said, you know, there was one director that was fired. And then when they were trying to get another director, Kurt Russell kind of directed for a while. So, right. I mean, these are not uncommon things. Um, but uh, something that is common is that a movie just kind of falls to pieces if someone like the director gets canned and luckily for us, I mean, especially something like this to have a period piece, Western cannibal movie. I'm sure that there were some executives that um, I believe it was Fox that produced this 
they were probably like, well, you know what? Let's just pull, let's just cut our losses here. Right. Um, I mean, because it is it is unusual, like we were saying, of, of a period um, horror movie. And not only that, but a very clever movie. Like you said, there's a lot of twists and turns. Um, obvious influences, like you brought up the Manifest Destiny mm-hmm. as, you know, the more you eat, um, the more that you want. Just kind of uh, basically what we would call consumerism yes. is kind of um, capitalism is but used as um but as seen through the eyes of a cannibal is cannibalism before before we had the term consumerism i think it was expansionist is kind of like the the same sort of mentality you know before it was about objects and material it was about the actual land itself and just you know getting as much as you could quote unquote gobble up you know right and um the other obvious, well, not obvious, but I, I'm guessing that the, the, some of the elements of this, this script would come from um, Alfred Packer, who's notorious for um, eating some of his uh, <laughs> companions and uh, the Donner Party, uh, the Donner Party, right. um, you know, kind of um, these, these people that were kind of forced into cannibalism um well there's another you know. one that i think you know I, I haven't seen this and i might just be a, a maybe i have seen this i don't know i think the fact that the character calhoun is from scotland is uh they're pulling from the swanee bean legend the the cannibal out there who lived in a cave with his supposed inbred family who are responsible for right. hundreds yeah. of cannibalistic murders throughout um uh, scotland and I, I think it was even before the the uh 18th century i think it was before then but i think that's part of it and then also uh the wendigo legend of native american lore uh you know mm-hmm. it's yes. kind of like yeah yeah uh, the more you skinwalkers like the skinwalkers yeah um and then I, I i was also i kind of um it reminded me also of the the story of that that soccer team lost in the Alps um, was turned into a yes. called alive right um, that you know and um, if you want to see a, a kind of funny a funny take on cannibalism I believe that it was uh, Trey Parker of South Park fame one of his first movies is called Cannibal the musical based on Alfred Packer. And um, that was put out by Troma uh, before South Park was even a thing. So, mm-hmm. so that's available if you want to see a, a humorous take on this. We got a very bleak story here, though. This movie it's is um, it's it's humorous in its own way, though. A definite black it, comedy. It is very. I mean, that's the kind of thing. Um, uh, another interesting funny take on cannibalism there's a there's a great movie from the early 80s called eating raul um about uh a couple that needs to uh kind of get rid of some bodies and what better way to get rid of bodies you know they they, they have some interesting ways uh, you know they sell bodies uh to to dog food companies but there's there's one particular instance where they have no way of getting this body out of the apartment um and um so they they feed it to their guests. Um, lots of lots of movies. Um, the thief, the cook, the wife, and her lover is another movie that ends with um, a charred body. Um, probably it's probably one of the most beautiful uh, sets that involves uh, 
a, a body prepared to be eaten. But um, you know, this is this is it's not an easy topic to digest. Pardon the 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 bad pun there, but um, you know, the the script is so clever. Um, I kind of like the fact that uh, you the less you know about this script going in, the more uh, surprises uh, await you in this, in this, this little story. Uh, I knew very little about this movie. I didn't see it in theaters when it first came out. This was something that I saw later um, as a video rental. And uh, I now own a, a copy of, because it is really, it's, to me, it's so well acted. Let's talk a little bit about this amazing cast. You already mentioned we've got Robert Carlyle, Guy Pierce, um, Neil McDonough, um, Jeffrey Jones, who uh, we're, we won't delve into his personal sure, life. Yeah. But as, as just a character actor, Jeffrey Jones has just showed up in some of my favorite movies. So as much as he's done some heinous, heinous things, I can't help but, you know, respect, respect his acting ability. Well, his character uh, brings one of the biggest twists, too. So, yes. You know, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, David Arquette. Um, oh, man. Who's, who's great in this movie. And... Um, Interestingly enough, I, this movie makes for a great um, double feature if you want Western period piece cannibal movies featuring David Arquette, match Ravenous up with Bone Tomahawk, and you're going to have yourself... Um, I didn't even make that connection. You're totally right, man. That would be wonderful. How, biz how bizarre is that? Like, it's such a, a niche specific genre a period piece western horror movie um and actually you could say there's elements of cannibalism in bone trauma hawk oh, as well absolutely so, um i mean i mean kudos to david arquette like for 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 snatching these these little roles david up. arquette is a wonderful actor and you know his interview uh, in, in my book, The Dreadful Years, was one of my favorites. Uh, you know, at the time he was promoting uh, the film Spree, which was, uh, you know, a, an indie, uh, low budget, uh, kind of like a streamer, streaming horror film, uh, all done through the perspective of a, a, a would-be Instagram influencer sort of thing. It, it, really good. But he was just great to talk to just because of, you know, who he is and his legacy. I think he's done so many great things. He was so great to talk to. Asked him a little bit about Scream, you know, it, it was maybe a 20, 30 minute interview that I wish could have been an hour because I would have loved to have talked to him about Ravenous. Such a great movie. He plays such a good character. But I got to ask you personally, because I, I actually was thinking about this. You know, I watched it again last night, obviously, to prepare for this podcast. And I'm watching it again last night. And I realized for the first time that as much as I love the film and I think it's a masterpiece, I really kind of feel like. David Arquette's character, what happened to his character is almost like a plot hole. And, you know, we can just go full spoiler here because I think most people uh, have, have seen it. For me, it just doesn't yeah. make sense that, um, that uh, we'll just blame it all on Ives to, to have some mystery. It doesn't make sense to me that Ives would murder Cleves, that's David Arquette's character, and not eat him. It doesn't make any sense. And I, I mean, I get it. 
that they were doing that to frame Boyd for his murder, that that was part of their plan. But like, it just never even sat right to me. Uh, it, I guess it's it's wrong to say that it didn't sit right by me. But you know what? As I was watching it, I haven't seen it in a few years. I almost have like this false memory of David Arquette's character of Cleves being one of the cannibals in the end of them like nursing him back to life with the, right. the human flesh too. I almost had these like false memories of Cleve being one of the final cannibals, but that that's not how it happened. How do you feel about no. all that? Um, I, I, yeah. So I, we always, I, um, I say that if, you know, if you haven't seen a movie in a while, you get what they call, I guess the Mandela effect where you have, right. These kind of um, these memories in your head, and you you think, oh, I I could have sworn so and so survived in this movie, right. or I thought they were in on it. Um, yeah, I would say that that's probably the weakest aspect of this of of the plot. I didn't really, I don't think it it probably didn't rub me the wrong way. But now that we're having this conversation, next time I watch it. I'm going to be looking, I'm going to be keeping a, a closer eye out to see if there is more kind of background to them. Um, yeah, I guess my, my false memory, my Mandela memory, was because I felt that he deserved more. And maybe in my own mind, I had worked out a way for that. Because they could have, like, killed all the horses and blamed it on Poyd and locked him up and said, sure. you're just nuts, you know? And right. they could have they could have wounded Cleves like they did with Boyd and then given him the opportunity to uh, regain his health through through cannibalism, which which we learn um, uh, the Calhoun slash Ives character talks about how he was actually uh, had some chronic illnesses before he turned to cannibalism. And it was cannibalism that, you know, revitalized his body and and spirit. You know, he, he felt a uh, 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 virile and vital and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, part of it is I think I just love David Arquette so much. You know, I love, <laughs> I love his yeah. character in it so much. You know, he's like, he's a, he's a stoner. He's the stoner dude smoking the, the Indian loco weed and getting high on peyote. You know, he's great. And and then he plays a very similar role. He's kind of the, the, the degenerate in Bone Tomahawk who basically, right. you know, who kind of sets off the, the, um, the series of events he doesn't have a much of a role to play in that movie either uh which is an, again unfortunate because i think he is an underrated and underappreciated actor oh, absolutely. Uh, i i talked i've had the pleasure of interviewing um one of his uh personal friends who's a documentary director who worked on um the documentary you can't kill or you cannot yeah. kill David Arquette, uh, whatever the, the actual title is. And I've heard, I mean, he's one of the, that, that Arquette family, um, you know, uh, Alexis, uh, RIP, but, you know, mm -hmm. you've got uh, Rosanna and mm -hmm. um, uh, Patricia mm -hmm. um, that I'm uh, just like just a great, great wealth of talent in that family. And they all um, have a really unique style, too. It's like all of them, uh, you know, it's not like there's a, a, a similarity. They're all all four of them who you just mentioned are very are very diverse group of actors stylistically. It's, it's really amazing. And, you know, yeah, <laughs> David Arquette. I don't. Guy. You're not, you're not going to get them mixed like um, you sure are. 
aren't. <laughs> You're not going to get them mixed up. Like I always, I, you know, every Alec Baldwin, cause he's the best well-known. And then the, I don't want to pick on him because of his weight, but I, I know there's the one that's kind of a bigger guy, right, but the right. two, those, those two middle brothers, Billy and Steven, uh-huh. I'm con- like, if you, I, I, I couldn't tell you which one is which. Oh, they're yeah. almost they're almost interchangeable to it's me. It's the same way with the Hemsworths and yeah. uh, even the Skarsgårdses. I mean, I know that um, uh, Bill Bill Skarsgård is the the standout, but like it, 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 there's something similar though. Even though he and his brother yeah. play such Alex and and Bill play such different roles, there's still something similar in their like smoldering intensity. You can be like, oh yeah, they're they're brothers, you know. Yeah, and uh, don't even get me started on the Waynes family. Um, <laughs> there's way too many of them for me to even keep track of, and um, you know they're, they're almost interchangeable in, in certain roles that you could easily say, "Well, that, that was Damon, that's Keenan, that's mm-hmm. Marlon." Uh, but enough about uh, enough about them. It just it's amazing because we get it, and what I love about this movie is we get. I'm gonna say that 90, 95% of this cast is all men. It's an all male cast. I think there uh, were two two women. I, I was kind of like trying to count. Um, yeah, I think there were only right. like two women. Yeah. Um, and so you don't get. Uh, and, and not that I'm opposed to mixing romance in, in with your horror movie, but sometimes. If it's ham-fisted and it just seems out of place to have a romantic interest, um, not every single movie that you see needs to to have sure. an element of romance in it. So it's kind of sometimes you're watching like a a, a horror movie and it's like where where does this where, where they, like this relationship is coming out of nowhere? These people are in an intense situation and all of a right. sudden they're falling in love. Like I I don't buy it. So but I'm glad similar- that. It's similar to, it reminds me of kind of like The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, you know, again, you have this isolated thing and, you know, all guys kind of make sense, you know, because if you throw a woman in, it's going to, or the potential for romance in, you know, even between two of the guys, if there was romance, it would just kind of like throw something else into it. It's, you're right that it's too intense a situation to be distracted by that. It, It would almost be a detriment to the storytelling, even though... It, it would be realistic, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can, uh, I'm trying to think where um, a movie specifically where all of a sudden this romance comes out of nowhere and it completely stops the pace of the movie. Um, off the top of my head, it, this is uh, <laughs> the one that comes to mind immediately is Stephen King's only directorial movie, Maximum Overdrive. Yeah. Features features a love scene that really like interrupts the pacing of that movie. You've got this intense situation where all these people are surrounded by sentient trucks, and then Emilio Estevez and this chick are just hooking up in the back room while their lives are in danger, and they're trying to, to you know to, to survive. It just seems it, it, it's realistic, but yeah, it's not the kind of thing that you want to take away from the story to, you know, explore, you know, it's kind of like get back to the good stuff. Right. You know, it's like, yeah. So, I mean, there's so much that I like about the, the cast is just 
amazing. My only problem, and again, this is just maybe because I I'm not too familiar with um, them overall as actors. Robert Carlyle and and Guy Pierce, other than the mustache, they all they, they look a little similar mm-hmm. to me. Um, especially just maybe because of the, the the period outfits that they're wearing, the period kind of hair and stuff. I, I sometimes get them confused, um, but that that's a me problem. That's not a, a, a movie problem. Um, and like like I said, Neil McDonough, I, I, another underrated actor. He yeah, he. Even if the movie's not necessarily very good um, and he's in it, you could always kind of depend on him to really deliver um, a very solid performance. Um, So everyone's everyone's really pulling their weight in this. And another thing that I really dug about this movie that I didn't even realize until um, doing the research for it is that one of the one of the. Composers for this movie is uh, Mr. Damon Albarn of Blur and Gorillaz fame. Yeah. And the score is, um, it's really interesting too, because if if you, uh, I mean, Gorillaz has always been kind of like on the edge of the forefront of pushing music technology. Right. um, And then for him to do something so kind of like bare bones with very, you know, minimal kind of, you know, period kind of musical pieces here, because that's another thing that'll take me out of a movie is that if you're watching a mo- a period movie, then all of a sudden, like uh, this hard rock song kicks in, you're like, it takes me out of it. I'm just yeah, like, yeah, what? that was stylistically <laughs> done for a while, but you're totally right. You know, the, the, the score almost becomes a, a character in and of itself. And the score does a lot of like, kind of conveying the like madcap absurdity of it all. You know, it could have been, right. we, we talked before about what a bleak movie this is at times. And it's almost like, it's almost like the score jives against the, the bleakness of the film at a few times, but I think that's intentional. I mean, that's, you know, putting us off kilter and just showing us how mad and crazy it is. Just back to uh, the actor who played um, Reich for a second, Neil, what's his last name again? McDonough. McDonough. What I love about his, uh, him in Ravenous specifically is he does some great acting even after his character dies. He's dead. <laughs> he's dead, but that doesn't mean he's not in the movie anymore. And he's in right. it for another like 10 minutes after he dies. And he's still doing some great acting, you know, <laughs> because you- it's nuts. The scene with him and Boyd in the pit is pretty fucking nuts. I think that's what I was just going to say. I think the reveal of um, of what Robert Carlyle's actually up to and the way that he has tricked everyone into this this trap is so brilliant. I mean, yes. talk about suspenseful filmmaking, the tension that is built up because you have these two people investigating in a cave down like in a cave down a hole in a cave mm. like like we're talking so if you're you're claustrophobic you know we're talking like some descent like um pretty, pretty crazy 
Yeah, uh, qualities. And um, yeah, so it's Guy Pierce and um, Neil McDonough down in the cave, and they realize that they've been, you know, something's not right here. I, I believe it was that the number of people that he claimed passed away was greatly, it was greatly, it was, there was a huge difference between what well, he said. It was that he said there were six of them, and he left when two others were still alive. But then when they got right. back, they realized that no, there were six of them and, and the other five were dead before he left. So that means that he was the last man standing, not the one who escaped because someone else went crazy and killed everyone. Now, it just occurred to me because you brought up something about how, you know, one of the characters had, you know, had some illness and disease and that was kind of cured through cannibalism. That's kind of a quality we see very often with with vampires yeah you know some someone's sick and they almost get superpowers not superpower but like they're healed they're rejuvenated um it's on the verge it, it, of superpowers in ravenous i mean remember that yeah. he, his wounds heal you know he, he gets shot and you know basically stands back up and then a, a few weeks later he doesn't even have a wound anymore right so i mean it's a very interesting take on the whole cannibal thing because off the top of my head i can't think of another cannibal movie that's done that um i'm sure there's something out there that i'm i'm missing is there can you think of anything where like not off the top of my head but uh you know you're you're right that um it, it does seem to to kind of like go in a different direction than than i've seen cannibalism before which right and again uh, i think the score you we were going back to the score we're, we're kind of all over the place but that's the nature of my show yeah, you know we're it's good to do cult movies all over the place so like well, the conversation's got to be all over the place but absolutely like you said it's also it's also a, there's some very very funny moments in this movie and i think that the score, because the act, everyone's playing this very, very straight. No one's very winking straight. at the camera. And no one. Like, uh, we're, 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 even David Arquette's character, who's kind of like the, the lovable goofball, you know, he's still playing it relatively straight, um, uh -huh. you know. But I think the score kind of gives you permission to be like, oh, you know what? You know, the, the, we're playing, you know, the characters are playing it straight, but. We understand as filmmakers how, like you said, how absurd and ridiculous the situation is, and that it's okay to laugh at this. Well, it's almost you know? like you need that counterbalance. You know, there. I think that's why uh, so many horror movies. It's almost uh, appropriate to add a laugh or a, a moment of relief because you kind of need something to recalibrate you. You know, if you start off intense and stay intense, you, you don't have a, a way to. to get your uh, barometer aligned you know so the 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 film the the score yeah it did give us permission to be like this is nuts laugh kind of like let off some steam and you need that so that then the upcoming horror can hit harder again you know you can't just stay in that one mood the entire time eventually it, it'll jade your audience i think right or it'll just wear them out um yeah. and you know, if you're if you're already starting out at sixty, you know, sixty miles an hour, there's only so much you can go uh, faster before like you're just gonna get burnt out. Absolutely. Um, and uh, this movie again, the editing, the cinematography, the cinematography is beautiful, and I believe that this was filmed 
if I'm not mistaken, was this filmed in Europe? Slovakia, I think. Yeah, because it, so, it's yeah, beautiful. Eastern, Eastern Europe, but yeah, and that's another thing. I never, I never doubted that this wasn't uh, America. It looks, you know, and I've been to the, you know, um, Sierra Nevadas. So, you know, I've been up there. It, it looks very, you know, not, not the beaches of California that you're so used to seeing in film. But, you know, uh, California is a very diverse geography. So I, I never doubted that it wasn't America. But, yeah, filmed in, in Eastern Europe somewhere and, you know, probably an area of the Alps maybe even. I don't know. So, um we were um what was i gonna say so yes the cinematography the um the the, the costume design everything it looks it, it you get you never you never feel like it's out of place and you believe the time period that it was taken into um so one of the criticisms and i'm curious to what you think about this was um and this seems to be a common issue that's come up with with many movies over the course of, of time. Uh, but uh, Bird, uh, Miss Bird or Mrs. Bird, however she would like to be referred to, uh, was was not happy with the voiceover narration that, that takes place. And like I said, this is not a new problem that's occurred between directors and producers, notoriously Ridley Scott with Blade Runner. Um, David Lynch's Dune has not a voiceover narration, but just like a an intro, like a three and a half minute, four minute introduction mm -hmm. of just a, an actress staring at the camera, reciting like background for you. This, but to me, I can see where other movies it, it didn't really work. I I thought it was it was okay. The voiceover narration kind of helped. I could see where it um. I, I would like to see if there was a cut without the voiceover narration to see if I missed it. Was was that an issue for you with you this know, movie? It, it was so not an issue that I can't even remember the voiceover parts of Ravenous. Where was it? it? It's it's um it happens a little uh, in the particularly with the beginning I believe um and towards the end it's a uh, uh, excuse me I have to blow my nose uh, okay. Guy Pierce um. But yeah, it's some in certain movies it really takes me out. I, I was kind of uh, I, I could see because she probably spent so much time with this movie, you know, through the editing process, probably saw it so many times that you know it, it probably rubbed her the wrong way. Yeah, to me, it didn't really bother me. Something like the opening of Dune. Um, that's what that was when I covered that movie. Is one of the biggest criticisms I had was it's it's like a four minute. Right. scene i guess you could call it of just someone talking to give you backstory right and um blade runner i've seen so many times and i've seen so many different cuts that um i do prefer no voiceover narration i don't think it helps um but it, it to me it didn't it, like i i just came across this in my research that she had an issue with it um yeah, I to mean, me, I, I, I didn't even I notice didn't. it. So you know that that would speak to it not being an issue, uh, right? It didn't yeah. distract me, and uh, you know the the film feels very very well done. Right, I I think over overall it's 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 almost a miracle that a movie like this gets made because, like I said, it's such it's it's a it's probably a hard sell. Cannibal, you know, cannibalism. 
was it, it kind of goes in like it, it becomes chic for a little while like yeah, the silence bit. of the lamb gets popular you know hannibal picks up um but then you know it's like oh you know it's been done to death but then you get a movie like this that not a lot of people have seen um this you know, this like movie you said it, it's crazy that this movie even exists and it's still kind of crazy you know it, it it's not like uh, first of all it, it's not uh it's still a cult film obviously because it's on your show it's still a, a it was a sleeper at the time it's a cult film now people it, it it wouldn't fit if it was released today people still wouldn't know what to make of this crazy thing yeah. you know it's it's completely out of time and there's really nothing like it you know it, it's it's on the level of like amadeus in terms of like period piece accuracy you know and, and the costuming and, and everything like that and it's on the level of Silence of the Lambs that you just mentioned in terms of a, a cannibal horror movie. And it's this crazy, bleak, intense Western on top of it all, too. There's nothing like it in the universe of film as is. There are a few things that, you know, you can you can put it in the same basket with. You can carry along with it. But Ravenous is one of a kind. And it's unique as well. It is, and, and and I was thinking about that was the word that kept coming to mind when I was thinking when I was prepping for this interview. I was like, this really is. It's very very unique because yeah. it's as for the reasons we've 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 gone over, and, and, and okay. the fact that this was made by a major company. You know, I don't think they they probably didn't put. The, the marketing money into this that they would was something else but like you said the fact that we have a movie with this amazing cast um uh, an amazing uh, production crew working on it um and such uh, such a gripping story and not only that even though i know the twists are coming like i still find myself pleasantly surprised sometimes once you've seen a twist done, you're kind of through with it. Kind of like, you know, no offense to M. Night Shyamalan, but like once I knew the twist of The Sixth Sense, I never had any inkling to go back and revisit that. Right. But something like this, I, even though I know the twist is coming, Robert Carlyle at the beginning of the movie is so convincing that I'm almost like is maybe there maybe he isn't going to 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 pull the wool over right? maybe he really was a good guy who was just caught up in a bad situation and you know just to to backtrack a, a bit you know because I just we, we're stressing how unique this film is a lot of times you'll hear people talk about a film being unique and original as if that's the only good thing about it you know even True. when I disagree yeah. you know a lot of times if a film is difficult to enjoy. Or really experimental, like you know, Skinamarink or the Outwaters are really popular right now. They talk about how unique it is, but in this case with Ravenous, that's not code for saying it's difficult. And if it wasn't unique, it's not enjoyable. It is so enjoyable. It is so well paced. You know, there's action. There's you know this drama. There's this intensity. You know, I'm never bored. I'm never like, oh, you know, this movie's an hour and 40 minutes. Like, I wish it would hurry up so I could get to the end. Never having seen it multiple times. I mean, it's almost like it's so good. It's comforting almost, you know, just knowing it that is. you're watching a film that's that good and that entertaining. So calling it unique is not a backhanded compliment. It is so fucking no. unique, but it is such a good movie. 
And like you said, you, you you just brought it up very succinctly. Sometimes that is the only compliment you can give a movie. You'd be like, right. well, at least it's unique. Hey, you they know. were creative. Uh, clap, you know, <laughs> applause for your creativity yeah. and thinking outside of the box. But it wasn't, uh, you know, an enjoyable cinematic experience. This has it all outside of the box and, you know, exactly the kind of uh, a cinematic experience you're hoping for, you know, when you, you sit down with a, a bucket of popcorn. Right. So as we start to wrap up, I think we kind of established over the course of this conversation why this is such a cult favorite now. And especially when it comes to cult horror, I'm all, but uh, something that does surprise me, it, this isn't brought up very often when it comes to cult horror movies. Um, not as much as I think it should be. I, I, I don't think it's still, I still don't think it gets kind of the recognition and credit that it deserves. Uh, but that being said, that's kind of why I like doing this show is that, you know, I get to talk to, to people that love this, these kinds of movies and we can kind of spread the love. And hopefully, if, if nothing else, someone will listen to this podcast and be like, well, I need to at least check out this movie or I need to rewatch this movie. But as we start to wrap up, what I, what I like to usually ask my guests at the beginning of the interview, and I, I, I forgot to, was what was your introduction to this movie? Because I think you're younger than I am. So, I mean, like, was this on your... Yeah, I'm a little older than you, actually. Uh, you oh. know, I, I graduated high school in the, the mid-90s, so uh, a little bit older. I, I just found it in, you know, video stores and, you know, when a, a Blockbuster was still a thing, I'm sure, you know, and I just got everything and anything I could because I was a film buff. You know, when I uh, started getting my own physical media, when I started buying my own Blu-rays and DVDs, I was one of the very first, you know, I knew that I just had to have it. it it's, it's just such a great flick. Right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, anything, and I'm trying to think, like, if there's anything that would go hand in hand with this movie, I still think that, um, I think you know, a I don't great suggestion with Bone Tomahawk, you know, they're very I, different. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, the, the David Arquette kind of being that the thread one of the threads uh, is great, you know, but again, they're so, those two movies are very different, but you could probably carry them in the same basket. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, I didn't want to pat myself on the back, but no, I, I, go I for it, man. I, That's I, a great I, one. I, I kind of think that I'm just, I was just thinking because, well, both, because both of those movies, they, they, they really caught me uh, again because I went into both of them blind. Thankfully, I didn't really know anything about it. And especially not being a fan of Westerns, I was really kind of hesitant about Bone Tomahawk. Right. And I got to be honest, the first time I watched uh, Bone Tomahawk, this wasn't the case with Ravenous, but I, I was starting to get a little bored with Bone Tomahawk. Not the case now. Now that I, I know the full story, um, I can easily sit back and watch it. But I was kind of getting impatient with it. And then, oh my God, the last third of Bone Tomahawk is one of the most brutal, brutal things that I think I've ever seen. Yeah, they're, um, they're, they're very different. And, you know, Bone Tomahawk, does, it starts deliberately slow. I mean, it's almost yeah. like they're purposely drawing it out. And they're purposely kind of fucking with you in that sense. I mean, I think they're lulling you into this false sense of security. And it actually does try to hypnotize you, I think. You know, the scenes of, um, uh, was it uh, Kurt Russell and um, what's the, what's this guy? Guy who plays the, the really good actor. I'm forgetting his name now. But they even move slow and they're reacting to each other slowly. Um, right. 
and but yeah, Ravenous it, doesn't have that issue. It's just it pops from you know beginning to end. The pacing is just superb. Right, and it's almost and I, as much as I don't like the um, the phrase heightened horror, I'm not sure how you feel about it. I to me, I I, I don't even like it necessarily just classifying a movie as horror. If it's enjoyable. Uh, to me, that makes it a good movie. If it's entertaining, that makes it a good movie. And if it really, if it scares you, um, and those were the intentions, because I think that this is the kind of horror movie that certain horror fans wouldn't be a, necessarily a fan of, because you don't have a, a machete wielding killer. Um, it's it's. It's a very cerebral kind of tale at first. I mean, you get plenty of, of blood and gore, um, especially in the beginning and at the end. But there's a, you know, but it is a very cerebral kind of movie. Um, and you could see, what, based on the strength of the script, why kind of such high caliber actors would be drawn to it. Because... Th- like I said, you know, th- these are the kind of actors you don't typically see in, and you wouldn't typically see in a, and in, and I'm just gonna throw it out there in a '90s horror movie, you know, it's, other it's than David so, Ark. Yeah, and it's also so interesting too that you've got Guy Pierce and uh, Robert Carlyle uh, playing these Americans in this movie about America at this time in American history, and neither of them are Americans. Uh, I, and I don't think Neil McDonough is too. I'm pretty sure he's like super Irish, yeah, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, it really is. I and I, I think that we've kind of talked this movie to death, uh, mm-hmm. just about how unique it is. And I'm just so pleased um, to have this opportunity yeah, and to know, find it. It's a bummer that our, our uh, John Dies at the End show uh, got sacrificed to the internet gods, but th- I'm glad I had a chance to come back and talk about Ravenous, because it's, it's a movie that de- really deserves to be seen and celebrated. Well, I, 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 I'm so glad that we, uh, we were able to get this, in, uh, this episode done, and for those of you who are curious, um, we've got something very special planned for later this later this year yes um, we do yes we do and uh, you'll all have to stay tuned for that but i mean we're, we're talking some real cult uh, a real cult classic uh coming up uh and i'm sure that i'll have uh josh on again um it's either before then or after then but i just wanted to thank you again for giving me some of your time today please follow him on twitter all his information is going to be in the episode description um and if you want to read some killer, uh, again, me with the bad puns, some killer interviews with some of the um, horror legends, then uh, dreadful, dreadful years. My God, dreadful uh, years, dreadful years. Yes. Um, available everywhere, and um, I'll if I'm guessing that it's on Amazon, I'll, I'll have that Amazon link it in sure the episode. Is. Absolutely. Great. Hey, thanks for having uh, me on, man. I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, My pleasure, Josh. Thank you so much to our listeners. Stay tuned. Uh, Like I said, we've got some real good stuff coming up in the future. And uh, I'm really looking forward to later this year 
um, a, a big time uh, a surprise coming to uh, all you horror, uh, not well, not horror, necessarily horror, but all you cult movie fans out there. So thank you for joining me again on the Cult Film Companion podcast. <laughs>